Good morning, brothers. Everybody's rejoicing in the Grizzlies game, Grizzlies victory last night. Except the few LeBron fans out there. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 14. <clears throat> and since we're looking at the theme of prayer, we have to, and we dip down into different books, it's helpful to know the background of the book that we're studying. <clears throat> so Colossians is written by Paul to a group of Christians he had never met. He hadn't visited Colossae, uh, uh, and, but he has, to tell, he has to write them some hard things. He had heard about them, and he heard that there were some heresies floating around in the church. Those heresies have been variously understood, but basically it was, it was non-biblical thinking. It was that they were allowing the thinking of the world, uh, the, the worldview the predominant worldview of the culture around them was coming into the church and they had found a way to baptize it and to make it a way, make it, uh, make it Christian, to, make, to Christianize it just the way we do today. Our politics or our, or our um, socioeconomic background or the predominant view of our nation can sometimes make it into, into the church and then we baptize it and we say, well, this is... This is Christianity. And they were <clears throat> being led astray. They were, they were adhering to different or additional authorities besides the Bible alone or the Word of God alone, as, as much as had been written at that time, expressed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was to be Lord of everything and to dictate everything that they did, even if it disagreed with the predominant worldview of the time. Paul was writing to them to correct them in that. Now, it's not just Paul, but it is Timothy. You see in the first verse, the first, the first chapter, maybe Timothy had gone to Colossae and he had, he had brought this report back to Paul. It's more likely that he's introducing, Paul is introducing Timothy as his successor. And Paul is co-authoring this book with Timothy. And so right away, we have this application. What do you say to someone whom you want to succeed? That's positively. What do you say to someone who is, is departing from a path, the faithful path, even if that path is very common in the culture around you. Even if everybody around those people are saying, hey, that sure is a good guy. Man, he's just right down the middle on his, uh, uh, the way he thinks about the world, the way he thinks about government, the way he thinks about politics, the way he thinks about money, the way he thinks about making decisions. That guy's right down the, right down the middle but he's to the side. He's away from Scripture. How do you deal with someone like that? How do you, how do you get them back on track? Well, Paul is very instructive to us. He doesn't hit them over the head 
and browbeat them right away anyway. He begins by uh, affirming what the Lord has done for them already. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, I'm coming to you as an apostle by Jesus Christ. I'm not coming to tell you what you are, what I'm going to, I want you to conform to my opinions. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. He affirms, because I'll explain it later how he can do this, but he affirms that, hey, the Lord, the Lord is going to get his way with you, even though you're off track right now. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then skipping down to, well, look at verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And now we pick up our text in verse 9. Here is what else he does and what I'm suggesting that we do uh, for one another. No matter where we are with the Lord, nothing more effective you can do to... uh, help someone else to succeed than to pray this way. And so, verse 9, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." Please pray with me. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to help us understand this text, to help us to put it into practice, to encourage us with it for our own lives and for those for whom we have the privilege of praying. And then I pray, Lord, for those who are here or who will eventually listen to this lesson that those who do not have a personal relationship with you, that this would be the day that through this very powerfully gracious passage of Scripture, they would long to have a relationship with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ like this. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake and God's men said together, amen. I'm a little nostalgic today because last weekend I had the privilege of returning to the first church I pastored in St. Louis, Covenant Presbyterian Church, not to be confused with the Covenant Presbyterian in Nashville. This was in St. Louis. And I was there to celebrate uh, the 20th anniversary of of a, a school also named Covenant Christian School, a school that is really thriving, one of the most desired schools in St. Louis now. 20 years, 20 years old and 20 years with the same headmaster, almost unheard of. And then I was invited to stay over and preach for the morning services at that church. It'd been, I've only, in 20 years, I've only uh, preached there once. 
And so it was uh, a trip down memory lane as I uh, walked around the campus and saw all that the Lord had done in expanding that church. And then, and then on Sunday morning, preaching to a people I knew very well and the privilege of holding communion trays as they came up one by one and partook. And as you can imagine, I, well, first of all, I was glad anybody was there that I had known before. I was glad anybody was there. I'm glad the church was going, but it was, that it was thriving. And I knew most of the people, or many of the people there. It had grown significantly, but I knew many of the people there. And everyone <laughs> that came forward I, I had a story. I, I just had a, I, I could remember something about their lives. I remember that time they, you know, came into my office, the, the young woman saying, I'm, I don't know that I'll ever get married. I, I'm just, I'm worried about that. Or the young man the same way, or the couple struggling in their marriage, or the, or uh, the, the, the person who came with a dire diagnosis, and the young teenager coming to ask my advice about college and so forth. And I thought about those stories one by one by one. And uh, for each one, I could remember something like this. I'm so glad that young man didn't take my advice on college. Uh, and uh, and uh, that, that, uh, that, that, that that fellow didn't listen to me when I, when I told him what career choice he should make. Or I'm so glad it actually worked out uh, for them to marry each other when they didn't feel good about it. And I urged them to do so or... That person is alive today because of the miracle God granted them for, for healing, or that person's spouse is not here because they were not healed. Uh, and uh, then here is that person who, who I met, uh, you know, in a in a in a business setting, and and now they've come to Christ. Now their their children are walking with the Lord. He's an elder in the church, or. Here's someone who came to Christ in our worship service, and they're still walking with the Lord. My, those stories revealed uh, two very predominant things to me. One is that my specific petitions for the specific material needs of their day, or as the person and I were discerning them, they may or may not have been answered. That, uh, the, 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 that those people's, that, that the advice that they sought was probably 40% accurate at best, maybe a little more. But this, that's one set of things. That is, the things that I did in my, in my limited knowledge and what seemed to be good to me at the time, hmm, it was far from 100% effective. But here, this was 100% effective. The prayer that I had been praying for people since I first became a Christian, this one in Colossians chapter 1, these petitions God had answered. And the people who are still walking with the Lord, who are going on in the Lord, regardless of their sufferings, their disappointments, the things that, that they had wished had happened another way, every one of these petitions had been answered. This, in other words, 
is a prayer that God gives to you to say, you pray this for yourself, you pray this for other people. This is my definition of success. And when I answer these petitions, this will be eternally significant success. Well, let's look at it if it's that important. And let me organize it this way. <clears throat> oh, <coughs> excuse me, a well-formed, <coughs> are we all experiencing Memphis these days? The beauty of pollen and so forth. <coughs> the <coughs> the well-formed disciple is one who is conformed to the image of Christ in terms of what he knows, in, what he, in terms of what he is, and in terms of what he does. You're not a disciple of Christ just by the knowledge you have, just because you're a godly person in your private character and not just because you do a lot of good things. It's that combination of, of formation, knowledge, being, and doing uh, conform to the image of Christ that is pleasing to God in the formula for success. So let's look at it under those three heads. What does this prayer teach us about knowing God, about what we are supposed to know, what we need to know to be successful as followers of Christ? Well, first of all, it's important to understand, to know God's work. Now, notice <clears throat> there is a transition here in verse 9, and so. Well, that indicates to us that he's connecting to something that has gone before. And Paul is in the habit of writing very long sentences without punctuation. And so we have to go back way up to verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith. And then he goes on to describe what is true of their faith all the way down to verse 8. And then he picks up again with his prayer. We, in other words, we, the way we start praying for you is not in verse 9. The way we start praying for you is to thank God for you. Now, that's a very uh, important application to make here at the, very, at the, at the beginning uh, of our study. Because what is our tendency when someone's going off the rails, when somebody's walking in an, uh, uh, an errant path, when we're worried about somebody? Our first thought is, what can I do? What can I say? What can I change? And then we're running to the Lord saying, change this, change that. Please, Lord, hurry up. What's wrong with you? But here, Paul takes a breath. He steps back, and he remembers what God has already done for them. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. He remembers things that God has done for them already. It's God who's brought them into the faith, God who converted them in the first place, God who has worked this conviction in their hearts that there is a heaven, that, there is, that they are to love one another. God has done this work already. And it's very significant because Paul indicates, when Paul uses the term, we thank God, he has two different phrases for that, two different constructions in the Greek. One is he thanks God in a certain way when he has had some hand in the fruit 
that he's thanking God for. We thank God for you, brothers, in Corinth. Well, he thanks God for the ones in Corinth because he was the one who preached there. And God, that yes, God is the one who converted, but God used Paul to bring the gospel there. Paul has had nothing to do with the Colossians' conversion. So when, there is, when he thanks God for something that he had absolutely no hand in, that is a particular Greek construction. That's what we see here. I thank God, though I had absolutely nothing to do with any of the following, I thank God for his work in you. It's very important to start every prayer that way. Whatever your need is, Whatever your concern is for yourself or somebody else, start with thanksgiving. I thank you, Lord, that while I was born, you did that. And I thank you that you drew me to yourself. And I thank you for what you've done already. I thank you for what you've done in that other person before you launch into specific petitions. <clears throat> he acknowledges, first of all, that first of all, when you're you need to know, you need to remember that the one to whom you're praying is sovereign over all things. You're asking for him to work, and he already has a very long track record of working out his sovereign will and doing so very well. Second thing we need to know, what we need to remember is God's will. And that's specifically what he, that's how he begins in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will. Filled with the knowledge of his will. This is more than mere knowledge of God. Every human being knows God. They may not admit it, but in Romans 1, and two, we're told that God has made himself known to everyone through the creation, through the conscience. He's written his laws on our hearts. Every human being looking at creation and, and experiencing the stirring of his or her conscience knows that there is a powerful being out there uh, who is, with whom he has something to do. He has some relationship with that, that being. God has put that knowledge in us. He's not talking about mere knowledge. He's talking about specifically the knowledge of God's will, his desire, his decree, his, his desire for, for the way history unfolds, the way your life unfolds. God's specific desires for all of human history and every human event. I pray that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Not that you're going to know everything that God knows and everything about everything. But specifically, he's asking, I pray that you'd be filled with. That means I pray that you'd be happy with it. I pray that you would, as, you, as it is revealed to you, and what you're asking for is not just, I want to be aware of what's happening in the future. You're not going to a fortune teller. I want to, I want to know what you're desire is what would make you happy, what would please you, because I'm going to be pleased and happy with exactly the same thing, even if in my flesh it doesn't make me happy at first. I want to know the way you want things to go, and then I'm going to be supportive. I'm going to be happy about it. Now, where do I get that idea? Look back at Romans. Just turn to the left in your Bible a little bit. 
Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says a similar, (coughs) verses 1 and 2, Paul says a similar thing. After he has unpacked all of the mercies of God up to this point, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, uh, spiritual worship. In view of God's mercy, in view of all that he's done for you, I want you first of all to say, I want you to use my hands, my feet, my mouth, my eyes to do exactly what is most pleasing to you. And specifically, this organ of your body, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And how is our mind to be renewed? As your mind is renewed... Uh, this is what happened, that by, the te- by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's what I think Paul is talking about. Here is, here's what happened. As your mind is renewed, as, as the Holy Spirit works on your brain and rewires it, to see the world through the eyes of Scripture, to see the world as God sees it, and t- you will become happy about it. And you will approve. You will consider good and acceptable and perfect the will of God. Even if people looking on the outside of you says, how can can you think that what is happening to you is good and perfect and acceptable? That doesn't make sense because it doesn't match the circumstances. But by the Holy Spirit's miraculous transformation of your brain and your heart, you say, because I'm totally confident that I'm in the hands of a good and perfect Father, I can say that whatever is happening in my life is happening because he has deemed it best. And someday, even though this is tough, even though this is testing, and someday I'll look back on this with perfect vision and I'll say, I would not want one thing any different. I pray that you would be filled up, he says. I pray that you would not only know what God's will is for your life, but be happy about it. And then... <clears throat> Uh, he, he modifies that by saying, which is, you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, there he doesn't mean there is, there is secular wisdom and understanding, and then there is spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's not the way, that's not biblical anyway, that kind of division. We could have a capital S here, spiritual wisdom. That is, wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit. So I pray that you know God's will, what you are supposed to do, how you're supposed to live in this world, how you're supposed to think about it. And that's going to come from the Holy Spirit, as we said from, in Romans chapter 2, the Holy Spirit rewiring your brain and making you wise according to Scripture to have new spectacles through which you look at the world. The world looks at it this way. More and more, the world, is, the world is looking at itself through very, very, very polarized lenses, right? 
so that our worldview should, will never fit, should never fit cleanly into the polarizations of our culture. Instead, we should look with unique glasses and say, this is the way the Bible describes the reality. And the only way that's going to happen is for the Spirit renewing our mind. The Spirit renews our minds through the means of grace, through reading the Bible, studying it, just like you men are doing so faithfully here, through prayer, asking God to do it, especially through worship, weekly corporate worship. You know, we've noticed something very interesting, actually disturbing to us as we're We've been able to catch our breath around here as a church and look at things pastorally. We're, we're tracking with those people who have sort of fallen off the map, those people who, who have, you know, if they've gone to another church and they're in a, a, a great church, then God bless them. But if, if they're, if they're not, not going anywhere to church, and, and we've noticed a characteristic among those who have quit going to church since the, since the beginning of the pandemic, when they had an excuse not to go to church, and then they never picked up before. Even if they had been in church every week, all uh, their lives up until the uh, March 1 of 2020, those who have not returned in regular worship, there's a characteristic of them. They're negative. They're critical. They're defeated. Um, bitter. It wasn't true of most of them before. And they've, they've let the, the sourness of the culture capture their minds. And so we're, we're not writing them off. We're, we're, we're begging them. We pray for you that you would know God's will with spiritual wisdom and understanding. You're still going to look at the same world. You're not going to be Pollyannish. But neither are you going to be hopeless and angry and bitter. This kind of mind transformation, heart transformation comes by God's will, knowing God's will. <clears throat> Don't worry. Each point is not as long as the first. The second is that as we know, as God shapes us this way by the renewing of our mind, we become something different. I think that's what he is describing in verses uh, 12 and following. We'll look at those again later too. Here's, here's what you're going to become. You're going to get, become people who give thanks, people who are characterized by gratitude, people who live in a different kingdom, a kingdom that is characterized by, characterized by the love of the Father and the Son. People who live in the awareness of forgiveness. Now, there's a, Paul has a very uh, handy, um, uh, short, or his shorthand phrase that captures all of that good stuff. And it's just these two words, in Christ. In theology, we call that union with Christ. When you come to Christ, as, as, uh, when you ask the Lord Jesus to take your sins and to give you uh, His righteousness in its place, when you enter into what we call a personal relationship with Christ, He takes your life mysteriously and He joins it to His. He, he, it's, like, it's like hooking you up 
to an ECMO machine. You know, he starts pumping his life and uh, vibrancy and transformational power into you. That's union with Christ. And every place you see in Paul's writings, and now I want you to, you know, make that a habit. Maybe you take a, a highlighter, and every time you see that little phrase, in Christ, it's not just a passing prepositional phrase. It is chock full. It is pregnant with theological meaning. These things are true of you, he says, because you are united to Christ. And because you're united to Christ, these will be the characteristics of your life. Let me whet your appetite by pointing you to a few places in <clears throat> the book of into, uh, um, Colossians where this is true. And I didn't write these down, so I'm going to have to uh, rely on the old faulty memory here. But here's, um, look at verse 2, chapter 1. <clears throat> to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, I told you already that these are... These are guys, guys and gals who are wandering off into heresy. So, but, but Paul says, you are faithful, you are faithful and holy. How can he say that? Don't you see the way, Paul, don't you know the way they're living? Don't you know the way they're thinking? How can you say that? He says, because I'm looking at them as they are in Christ. I'm looking at them through the prism of Christ. I'm not looking at them first. By the way, it's very helpful for, for interpersonal relations. <clears throat> Just a little sideline here. If you go to 1 Corinthians and look at the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, you know, Corinthians, the church at Corinth is the most dysfunctional church in the New Testament. If you ever get discouraged about your church, just look at, Cor at Corinth and you say, well, at least it's not that bad. And, and, but, but Paul before he launches into all the bad stuff they're doing. You know, a man sleeping with his mother's wife, and they're, they're fighting over this and that, and there's no communion left for anybody else because other people are gorging on it. It's, it's crazy stuff. But Paul begins by saying, I love you so much. I praise the Lord. You are faithful. You are holy. How can he say that? Because he begins by saying, I praise my God, for those of you who are in Christ. It's very helpful when you have a challenge with somebody in a personal relationship, it's helpful to back up and say, I'm going to look at them first as who they are going to be in Christ perfectly before I look at them as they are imperfectly right now. Look at verse, uh, I think it's 22. Chapter 1, <clears throat> uh, no, apparently not, but, um, well, I, uh, uh, verse, uh, look at chapter 3, <clears throat> if then you have been raised with Christ, <clears throat> sometimes it's translated differently, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things on earth. Look at the value of that. <clears throat> um, you are, your life is absolutely infallibly secure because you have been resurrected with Christ. It's a, you're living here, but your future is so certain. The resurrection of your body is so certain. 
that they can speak of it as if it has already occurred. Why? Because you are in Christ. Your life is with Christ. It is united to Christ. So scan those verses. I think I have written them in your notes. I don't know why they didn't get in my notes. But <clears throat> some examples of, of this in Christ relationship. So the next thing. So it is important for us to know God's will. And knowing God's will, being transformed by him, will convince us, remind us that we are in Christ Nothing can shake us. There's no better place to be. No need for us to cower. No need for us to be bitter. No need to be us for it to be defeated because we can't fail because Christ can't fail. And Christ can't fail because he's God's son. Final thing. What are we supposed to do as a result of what we know, who we are, well, that's outlined for us, verses 10 through 12. So I pray that you be filled with the knowledge of God's will and spiritual wisdom and understanding so that, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. This walk, this idea of walking was not a Greek concept, it was a Hebrew concept. And when the Hebrews talked about walking, what they meant is that time after time, you repeat the same thing. That's what walking is, right? It's just one step after another. You're repeating the same thing. And for a Christian, the very first step is what? The very first step is total reliance on Jesus Christ. So if you're supposed to repeat the same step, what does that mean? Well, my next step is to be total reliance on Jesus Christ and the next total reliance that's why that's why God God's angel touched the hip of Jacob in the Old Testament because Jacob up to that point had been relying on himself for everything this whole thing is up to me and so knocks his hip out of place so that he has to he has to lean on his cane every time he takes a step Jacob, I can't get you to remember this point. I can't get you to remember to rely on grace for everything in your life. So I'm going to knock your hip out of joint so that you'll have to rely on your cane. And that will remind you, ah, it's all about the Lord. I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Typically, we think of that, ooh, I've got to work hard so that I don't bring embarrassment to Jesus. No, it means I need to walk in a manner that reveals every step is dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ. I need to depend on him for every direction. I need to depend on him for how he's going to lead me, how he's going to take care of me into all of eternity. And as you walk that way, this is what's going to happen. You're going to grow. When you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, <clears throat> you'll bear fruit in every good work. You'll be like the tree planted by Rivers of water bears fruit in season, says Psalm 1. Isn't that what we, each of us, really wants? We want to be successful. We want to have a life that counts. We want to have a life that matters. We want to, as we lie on our deathbed, look back on our life, we want to say, I made a difference. 
I, I made a contribution. And yet most of us define that in all the wrong ways. So we get to the end of a career, we retire, and we look back and we say we're, we're unsatisfied because it only takes a couple of weeks for people at the office to forget who we were. Or the whole industry changes. What is the secret to having a life that really matters, that is eternally significant? It's by taking each step saying, what is your will, Lord? And I'm totally dependent on you. And my life may not be considered uh, successful by any of the, the standards around me, but if I can get to the end of life and know I've done your will, and here, good and faithful, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want. A life that is lived in dependence on Christ is one that will bear fruit in season. He will produce what he wants produced in his timing. And then it's one you'll go on, you'll be strengthened. You'll be strengthened with power. And specifically, you are strengthened with power to give thanks, to live gratefully even when it's counterintuitively and you will give live gratefully and give thanks because specifically you will know God is your father giving thanks to the father who has done these things for you he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of saints and light if you've given your life to Christ he's taken the 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 righteousness of Christ and substituted it for your sin and therefore qualified you to live in heaven forever he has delivered you, verse 13, from the domain of darkness, which is the realm of Satan. Even if you're not a Satan worshiper and everybody thinks you're a good church-going, uh, decent citizen, if Christ is not your Lord and Savior, you're living under the dominion of, of the devil. And so when you give your life to Christ, he delivers you from the domain of darkness, transfers you into the kingdom of his beloved Son. You come into a kingdom that is characterized by love, by grace, by the fatherhood of God. J.I. Packer says this about <clears throat> the fatherly love of God. You sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, listen to that. You want to judge how well a person understands Christianity? Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Somebody characterizes Christianity as rules, Christianity as, as um, uh, the do-nots. Somebody characterizes Christianity by the way they live as a, as a sour apple. Instead of, the Father loves me. That's Christianity. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new, and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp 
of adoption. Having made that point, I'm going to end differently than I began. <clears throat> and I remember <clears throat> when I was a college student listening to the testimony of a man who had, uh, uh, was from East Tennessee, the mountains of Tennessee, and uh, had, become, had started a ministry to women who were uh, unwed mothers <clears throat> and gave them a place to live, a place of dignity, told them about Jesus, helped them take care of their babies if they desired to keep them, if they wanted to trust them to adoption, they would help them with that too. He'd never graduated from college, so he came back to the college I was attending and finished his degree, and so he gave one of the speeches at graduation. He talks about uh, being, um, being um, uh, mystery, his parents, uh, his, he, he was one of those oops babies. But his parents every day <clears throat> told him that he was a regret. You know, resources were already stretched. We didn't want you. And, you know, it's, it's really a hardship for us to take up our resources. We wish you weren't here. Finally, they found some family member that would take him, and then they got tired of him, and they put him to another family member on and on and on. He said he remembers coming down one day hearing a big celebration in the house he was living in at the time, and uh, it was a birthday party for one of, the, one of his cousins, and they came down and they said, this birthday party is for family members. You go back up to your bedroom. Total rejection. Nobody wanted him. So by the time he was 14 years old, he was living by himself in a, an abandoned car in the middle of a field. One day, <clears throat> he was so despairing. He, he had never heard of, of the Lord. He'd never been to church. But he, 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 there was a Bible in the back seat of that abandoned car. So he picked it up. And it flipped, it flipped it open, and it fell open to Romans chapter 8. You have not been given a spirit of fear leading to slavery again. You've been given a spirit of adoption by which you cry out, Abba, Father. And so he said, he looked up and he said, God, if you're there, and if you'll be my daddy, I promise I won't tell anybody because I don't want to embarrass you like I've embarrassed everybody else. And he said he heard from that passage of Scripture, John, I want everybody to know I'm your daddy. I want you to know, and I want everybody to know through you, I am your father. You know what? When we are truly convinced, we know it intellectually, but when we are truly and viscerally convinced, God, my Father, loves me. Every problem in our lives will either be solved, it won't be a problem anymore, or it will at least be put in its proper perspective. 
And that is the supreme answer to this prayer. The supreme answer to that question that we asked at the beginning, how do you pray for somebody to succeed? How do you become successful yourself? By praying for, in a word, that you would know and act like God is your Father, and it would daily transform you into becoming who you already are. Christ is your Savior. You're a child of God. And nothing else that you would become or not be matters. From the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Oh, Lord, we pray that this would become our prayer and you would answer every petition in it for the praise of your glorious grace. Get a name for yourself by making us successful image bearers of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, God's men said, amen.